that note at that one spot gets high there, you know? Didn't it feel like he should hit that high one at the end? He might have broke glass. I don't know. That right there, boy, that's a good song, isn't it? Boy, that's good stuff. Great job. Boy, both those songs spot on today. Amen? Spot on. Well, take your Bible. Turn over to the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 today. Romans chapter 12. Again, we have a theme this year. It's called Your Reasonable Service. That's the theme. And in this particular passage, that theme is expressed and dealt with. Basically, I want to revisit our theme a little bit as we close out the year and just take a few weeks to kind of, kind of highlight some of the things we discussed and dealt with along the way even earlier. I think the, the topic, the theme is so important and so impactful in our lives as believers that we could probably speak about it almost every other week and we'd never grow weary of it. And I think it's important that we keep this in mind as we move along. Even though it may be uh, last year's theme here soon, it needs to be something that's presently impacting our life. 
And so I thought I would at least touch on it again, address it, and we will look at this a little bit over the next week or two. Now, next week, of course, we have with us uh, Brother um, a Coral, and he'll be preaching all day. And I'm telling you, you do not want to miss that. I'd encourage you to invite somebody. He's a tremendous speaker, and I, I guarantee you this, he's got something to teach us. And uh, he is a brilliant Bible mind, and you're going to enjoy his preaching and teaching. And I want to encourage you to bring somebody with you that Sunday morning and Sunday night, and they'll be glad they came. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible simply says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We focused our attention primarily on verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Well, we spent a whole year now addressing and dealing with that theme, and we've tried to make it important in our, our focus here at the church. Boy, I tell you, you think about being a, a, uh, um, a servant of God, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, and that being our reasonable service. Boy, those are some tall orders, you know? That's a tall order. There are some things that people can ask us, or God can even ask, that seem pretty simple. But when he begins to speak to us and say things like, present your bodies a living sacrifice, it's your reasonable service, let me tell you something, uh, boy, that's, that's a tough one. That can be difficult at times. That can really really uh, um, define whether or not we really are the believer we believe ourselves to be, whether we're really the Christian we'd like to think ourselves to be. When we start to measure ourselves based on his response or his command toward us, we can say, man, am I really that servant? Am I really that person that has presented my body without reservation to God as a living sacrifice? Am I doing it willingly? Am I doing it under the impression and understanding that it is my reasonable service? Wow. That's a good way to really do a, a, a quick assessment of our level of Christianity. Well, the epistle here in the book of Romans is written to the Christians of Rome, of course. It was written in the time period of about 58 AD. At Corinth, it was written, by the way, uh, while in the house of a wealthy Christian, uh, wealthy Christian called Gaius. So Paul is in Corinth writing this book to the Romans. And he, he writes that. We see that in Romans 16. We'll not take the time to look there. But Paul would write the letter, and then he'd have it carried to Rome by a well-to-do widow by the name of Phoebe. And we recognize that also in chapter 16 as well. So the epistle itself is considered one of Paul's greatest achievements, whether it's judged intellectually, whether it's judged, judged theolog theologically speaking. It's one of his greatest masterpieces. I mean, when you think about books in the Bible that have a tendency to summarize tremendous doctrines and, and whole doctrine, like the whole concept and the whole uh, ball of wax, if you will, we go back to Genesis. And there in those first 12 chapters of Genesis, you can kind of get a real good feel for all the doctrine of the Bible, very, very basic fundamental doctrines and positions that God holds on some very basic fundamental things. Well, if you, wanna, you want that same kind of feel in the New Testament, you run to Romans. And there, as you read through the book of Romans, you kind of get an overview of what's important and what's necessary and needful. It truly is kind of the genesis of the New Testament. And so Paul writes this masterpiece, and it is certainly a masterpiece indeed. And basically, the epistle answers the question, how should man be just with or just before God? How can man be just before God? How can he be just with God? How can he do that? And we find that it's 
it, that no one can be just who is not adjusted with his maker. You can't be just with the maker until you've been adjusted by him. And boy, that's important, and that's in, it's, it's, it's a, something we must keep in mind. And the epistle reveals and explains God's way of justification. And, and when we think about justification, we'll talk about that a little bit today, but we're talking about that position where we really just as if we never sinned. We've been justified, and how do we arrive at that place? We don't do it without God. We have to do it because of God. He's the one that must do it in our lives. So in this particular book, Romans, we find our theme. And boy, we've spent some time earlier in the year, and now I want to, again, as I said before, kind of revisit that and try to reinforce those truths and, and, and help us to once again be reminded of how valuable and important this verse is and its truths in our lives today as believers. So first of all, we want to define the word mercy today, and we want to look at that. And then we're going to consider this idea throughout, because we have to lay the foundation again. And someone says, well, have we spoken on this before? Without a doubt, we have. And by the way, if you read the book of Romans, you'll revisit it every time. May I say today that that when you think about learning, repetition is the key to learning. Now, I'm going to tell you something. We preach so many messages from the pulpit at Community Baptist Temple, so many different themes, so many different ideas. And sometimes, if we're not careful, that message is here and it's gone. And that's about as far as it goes. We walk out the doors of the church and we go, wow, that was a good message. Or maybe we say that was a bad message. I don't know which, but usually it ends up back behind us somewhere. We don't carry it with us. We leave it behind us. And you know what? That's not uncommon and that is very natural. And the truth is, is that it's very difficult to take every single thing we've heard or everything we've read and truly apply it to our lives. But when it comes to this issue, Romans chapter 12, verse one, we really need to carry it with us, not leave it behind us. And so I am going to share some things that you've probably heard. But here, I promise you this. Most of you will go, I think I've heard that, but because it probably didn't sink in as much as we'd like it to. And so let's take a moment today and consider this issue because I believe mercy is at the very root of our passage. It's the very kingpin that's going to ultimately swing us toward the right behavior and right attitude. And so let's consider this mercy today for just a moment in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you'd bless us now, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd work in our lives, that, Lord, you'd once again not only remind us, but you'd help us to carry these truths with us long after This year's over and the theme has been changed. We need you, we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Now, when we define this word mercy, it's it's defined this way. That benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries, and to forbear punishment or inflict less than law or justice will warrant. Well, I'll tell you, that's an amazing word, this word mercy. Amazing word. The Bible says in Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. Oh, we're not, we can't go there. There's an element of guilt that must be addressed. But yet, in the long run, we note here, or in the, 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 the term that we're reading about, the Lord is long-suffering of great mercy. We can never forget that. If there's anyone that is truly an example of being merciful, it is our Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Now, when you and I, or when I think of mercy, and, and I've used this before, and I'm going to use it again, but I'm going to kind of bottle it a little bit. When I think of mercy, my mind always goes back to that Colosseum. You know how it is. You know, you have those gladiators there battling in the midst of the Colosseum. And then all of a sudden, one gets a little bit advantage over the other. And before it's over with, they may be wounded. And there they lie on the ground, and the other, the other gladiator stands before them or over them. Maybe put on the chest. Maybe the sword at the throat. And then he looks at the crowd. And the crowd is going to either give a, a yay or nay. Either show them mercy or end their life. And in those days, when he would look to the crowd, how they would show you if he wanted them to die, if the, there was to be no mercy exhibited, they would, they would take their thumb and go like this. Or they'd go like this. They didn't go like Fonzie. Hey. You know how Fonzie was, right? Some of you remember the Fonz. All right? Nobody cooler than the Fonz, right? But here's the fact. They didn't go like this or like this. They went like this or they went like this. And if they did that, if they gave that signal there in the Colosseum, off with the head, no mercy shown. However, if the crowd wanted the, the gladiator to be merciful to that one that was on their back, that one that was out for the count, that one that was certainly done for, that had no hope of surviving at this point, that was certainly just at the mercy of the gladiator and the crowd before them, they would go like this. They would hide their thumb in their hand as though they were, they were telling the gladiator to sheathe the sword, to replace it and put it back in the, 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 the sheave, the, replace it again. Oh, there it is. So it was either this or this. Mercy. And boy, I'll tell you what, that gladiator that was on the ground, I don't know about you, but if it was me, I would certainly want to see that one. I'd want mercy shown to me because the truth was I'm not jumping back up and I have no hope of, of living. I have no hope of making it at this point. I am just simply at the mercy of that gladiator and that, that Colosseum crowd. And you want to know something? That's the place that every believer finds themselves today when it comes to our God, our Lord and Savior. Over in the book of Romans chapter 1, if you would please look there. Romans chapter 1, as we go back in the book that we are now quoting from as our text Back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible describes mankind's plight the same way, in the same position. Notice it says there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We point, paint a God today that is simply a God of love and that he has no right even to judge sin, no right to expect people to yield to his authority, that although they may totally and completely reject him, although they may say that he, is no, that he does not exist, although they may even say bad things about him, he's such a loving God, he's a grandpa in heaven, he sits on the throne, and he's just there to meet the needs of everyone he ever created. And he has no right to do anything but good to humanity. But may I say the Bible paints a different God. The Bible paints a God who demands the respect and demands the, demands the, 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 the worship of his creation and demands righteousness from those who are currently sinners. And it says in the passage, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And someone says, praise God. Praise God, I'm not that person. Praise God, I, I, I'm not ungodly. Praise God, I'm not unrighteous. 
Well, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Unfortunately, each and every one of us, in a sense, are sinners. And as a result of that, we are destined to die and to be separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire and to have to endure the judgment of sin, which is total separation and in a place called the lake of fire. My friend, let me tell you, we are like that gladiator today that is down for the count and our God and Savior is above us and before us. And we are begging and pleading and hoping that he will have mercy on us because every last one of us are hopeless without him. We have no hope. We deserve death. We deserve to be punished. We deserve our sin to be dealt with. And so to be at the mercy of someone is to have no means of self-defense then. To be dependent upon them for your safety. And to seek and to look to them for compassion. And that is exactly the state that we find ourselves in our relationship with the God of heaven. We are sinners. We deserve the greatest of all punishment. And yet, God has extended his marvelous mercy to you and I. Boy, God is merciful to even the worst offenders, the greatest sinners, the most profound lawbreakers. This means that even though he knows of our guilt, he doesn't always issue the punishment that's deserved. He is merciful. And that's what the word mercy means, and that's how it's being used in the passage I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Well, we see here that that mercy was delivered and displayed throughout the book of Romans. I mean, if this passage, this particular passage, were being read to a group of Romans during the time of Paul, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, someone might ask the question, well, what is the mercies of God? Well, in those days, they didn't have commentaries on the Bible because the Bible was not complete, nor was it written. All they had were the very letters that the apostle wrote. So if we're going to define what that mercy is that he's speaking of in chapter 12, verse 1, we're going to have to go back throughout the book of Romans and identify what that mercy is. And boy, thankfully, Paul the apostle displays that. He delivers it to the people of God. So all they would have was the letter that was written to them. And it is in that, writ, that letter that we find what the mercies of God are. Look, if you would, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So what had Paul been saying all along? Well, in their minds, I'm sure they would feel like we need to go back then to the first part of the epistle. And what they would remember is how the apostle talked about how we were sinners, both Gentiles and Jews. And he makes it very clear. In Romans 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Boy, their minds, they would go back now into the scriptures and they would recognize the state of mankind. They would see themselves, according to the word of God, as sinners today. They would continue reading and they would learn how that as sinners, oh, whether Gentile or Jew, we might be declared righteous by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So the Bible defines us all as sinners according to Romans. And that's what they would recognize. And they would see that as they would go back and review the scriptures. But then they would continue on. And they would see also that whether we're sinners, and although we are sinners, Jews and Gentiles, we can be declared righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. 
being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set before to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. In Romans 4, 5, they would read this letter again and they would note, it would say, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. They'd move along in the scriptures and come to chapter 5, verse 1, and they would see here, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally in chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, they would read these words, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I don't know about you, but that would get me pretty excited and boy, these, these Romans now, they're reading these scriptures. They're looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul's written them. And they're asking themselves, what in the world is this mercy that he's talking about? What's he addressing? What's he dealing with? We know that we're sinners according to the word of God. We know that as sinners we deserve judgment and, and we deserve to be punished. But hold on a second. We continue reading in that very same letter they say to themselves that the God of heaven, the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ, hung on Calvary and died. And he will declare us righteous by his work. Wow. Paul then goes on to ensure that everybody understands that as a result of Christ's substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, the burden, the guilt, the condemnation of their sin can be lifted. And they are excited about that. Yes, Jesus was our substitute, they would learn. Jesus took our place. Jesus hung in our stead. He came and has borne the judgment that was rightfully ours as sinners And as a result, we're able to stand before the Lord God with a righteousness that is acceptable unto him. In Romans 5, 19, they would continue to read this letter and they would see, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Excuse me, uh, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Well, we know who that one was, right? Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, they would read, But now, being made free from sin and being servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So Paul labors for almost three chapters in the Word of God, telling us how we can be justified before God through faith. And we can be only justified before God through faith apart from any work that we do. It's all His work. It's what He did on Calvary on our behalf. And having done that, Paul would go on to address the principle of sanctification now. Oh, he's touched on, dealt with, drilled us with justification. Now he goes, moves on to this principle of sanctification. How we're to have been declared, now that we've been declared righteous unto God. We may now grow in righteousness or in the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
We move on now from simply just being justified to being sanctified and growing in our sanctification on a daily basis, growing in the likeness and the the look of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we reach that eighth chapter of Romans. He's speaking now about our glorification. When we shall be ultimately conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Finally, completely like Christ. In Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty encouraging. To be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ, wow. I don't know about you, but I don't feel I deserve that. He goes on in chapter 8, verse 29, a familiar passage. But whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Hey, that's a process now in this life in which we live. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. We're to be yielded and, and, and surrendered and, and, and given to the Lord and allowing him to mold and shape and make us into Christ on earth in that sense, to look like, to, to act like, to be like, to think like Christ, Christ-likeness. But notice he goes on to say that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There'll come a point where we are literally Christ-like. And in this life, we'll do our best to become that, and we are constantly on a, a, a journey to become more Christ-like as we take each step of our life. But there'll, become, there'll come a day when we will indeed be glorified with him and be as Christ is in that sense. We will not be Christ because he will be himself, but we will be like Christ. And these are some of the mercies. The mercy of justification, the mercy of sanctification, the mercy of glorification. Not one of us deserves those things. We're simply sinners. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead he extends grace to us. He gives us what we don't deserve. And it's all because of the mercy of God. It begins with his wonderful mercy. While we ought to be dead for our trespasses and sins, because we ought to be punished and separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire, God in heaven extends his mercy to us because of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And he says, if you put your faith and trust in him, I want you to know you have sanctification. You can travel the road of sanct- excuse me, justification and then travel the road of sanctification and ultimately experience glorification. What a wonderful thing that is. That's all because of the mercy of God. And these Romans are reading this epistle now. And they're saying, uh, he says, you know, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And they say, what are the mercies of God? They go back into that epistle and they say, oh, that's right. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And they get fired up and they get excited about that. And they recognize that God is doing a work. And so you talk about mercy today. You say, man, we're justified. We're sanctified. We're glorified. We have a new life, a new nature, a new home, a new family, a new outlook, a new hope, a new future, a new direction. God himself living in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. And when this life is over and my work here is done, Jesus, my Redeemer, Savior, and Lord is going to wipe away all tears from my eyes and I'm going to, he's going to make all things new. That is mercy, my friend. That's wonderful mercy. Boy, you talk about mercy. That's mercy. What mercy? And so what does that bring us to? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Notice the passage there in chapter 12, verse 1 again, as we close this out, as we make some final uh, final thoughts about this passage. Notice it says there again, 
I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. Now we're going to touch on that in just a moment, but I want you to think with me for, for, for a moment here also. We may speak of people in a number of ways, but often we'll speak of people as being driven. Driven by ambition. Driven by success. Driven by revenge. He is a driven man. She's a driven woman. They are driven by something. And boy, that force or that fuel motivates, it compels and it drives them. The desire for ambition or, the, or, or, or success or revenge will at times cause them even to neglect themselves and neglect others. It will at times drive them to any length to achieve. Often they are willing to make any sacrifice needed in order to obtain their goals. They are driven as believers. We're never told to neglect others, but we are expected to be driven. And in the passage, we are told what we're to be driven by. We're to be driven by mercy. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's saying, listen, I'm telling you to present yourself a living sacrifice. And let me tell you why. Because mercy, mercy, because of mercy. See that word, therefore? It's interesting. Notice it says, I beseech ye, therefore. See, that word, therefore, links God's demand for the believer's body to be presented unto him, of course. It links God's, it, it links God's demand for the believer's body with the mercies that Paul has been describing throughout the book of Romans. All 11 chapters have described the mercy of God in a sense, early on expressing that we're just sinners deserving punishment. But then we see those mercies being extended, although we don't deserve them. And we come and arrive at chapter 12. And he says at the beginning of chapter 12, after expressing his mercies, he says, I beseech ye, therefore. What he's saying is I'm looking back on those 11 chapters. I want to go back to the mercy of God. I beseech you. I cry out to you. I beg you. I I implore you. I, I beg you to see things this way. Why? Because of those past 11 chapters and the mercy that God has extended. Who can fail to be moved by these things? Who can fail to want to do the right thing for God after everything he's done for us? After hearing these things, Paul's saying, who in good conscience could say, well, so what? So what? The truth is that you'd be hard-pressed to find anything in this universe that is as significant or compares to the mercy of God. So Paul's saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Because of all that he has done for you, I beg you, I implore you, I cry out to you and say, present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, God's not in the business of strong-arming or forcing his children to be obedient. God doesn't do that. God won't make you be a good Christian. God won't make you sell out to him. God won't force you to present yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He won't do that. He won't, he won't make you submit yourself and surrender your will to his will. He will not do that. See, he's making a reasonable request, though. A reasonable request in light of the mercies he's bestowed upon each of us. He says, if you will go back and you recognize what I've written and what I've shared, you are sinners. Every last one of us are sinners and we are destined and doomed for a place called hell. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve anything but punishment. And yet God, hanging on Calvary 2,000 years ago, shed his precious blood, was buried and rose again the third day. There a dead Savior became a living Savior. And may I say, he says, because of the fact that he died for you and shed his blood and took your place, I can extend mercy to you and now you can be justified and you can be sanctified you can be glorified and you can walk with me and talk with me and enjoy my fellowship because of my mercy and because of my mercy you ought to present yourself to God you ought to present yourself willingly it ought to be something you and I do because we want to after everything he's done for us what a setup. Paul spends those 11 chapters highlighting God's mercy, or if you will, his infinite goodness, before lowering the boom and crying out, I beseech you. See, we ought to be mercy-driven. Let me, let me ask you, are you saved this morning? Are you saved? Do you know Christ is your Lord and Savior? Have you experienced the mercy of God? Have you experienced the goodness of God in your life? Hey, listen, without Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are destined for a place called hell. You cannot escape it. And whether you say you believe in hell or not, whether you say you believe in God or not is not the issue. He is there whether you want to believe it or not. This world, this, this life, this, this, this universe did not come into existence through a big bang or some crazy system that the world has defined or determined in order to do away with God. No, God is real and God is there and God created all things and you are part of that creation. And may I say he has a purpose and a plan not only for this universe, this earth and for, for the world. He has a plan for you and your life and that plan includes being forgiven of your sin and ultimately included in his family so that you can fellowship with him and bring glory and honor to him as you ought to. And when someone says to you, the real reason for your salvation is just to escape hell, my friend, you've missed the point. The real reason for your salvation is to bring glory to the God who saved your soul, to ultimately please the one who created you. My friend, you owe him. And so do I. And you got to get saved today if you want to escape the penalty of your sin. You too can be justified. You too can be sanctified. You can be glorified. You can spend an eternity with God because of his mercy. Do not miss your opportunity to be saved. God's extending mercy. He's not going to give you what you deserve if you'll simply trust and receive his son, Jesus Christ. What about you, believer? Are you mercy-driven? Does your mind constantly go back to the goodness of God in your life? Do you remind yourself of the many mercies that are yours, causing you to willingly present yourself a living sacrifice to the God of heaven? There's a song that goes like this. Merciful to me, 
When I deserve to die, merciful to me, my soul he brought to life. Nothing could I bring my debt to satisfy. Jesus was merciful, merciful to me. Do you know that song defines your existence as a believer today? It defines my existence. Will you be mercy driven? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Father, we come to you.